Hello, and welcome once again to another episode of the TriDoc Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Sankoff, the TriDoc, an emergency physician, triathlon coach, and multiple Ironman finisher, coming to you from beautiful, sunny Denver, Colorado. Well, we've all had a couple of weeks or so now to process the latest PTO extravaganza that was the Collins Cup that hit the internet airwaves just a couple of weeks ago now. I am quite certain that I don't need to explain to any of my listeners what I'm talking about when I speak of the Collins Cup, which in itself should indicate what a great job the PTO did in advertisement and promotion, and how well it was received in triathlon circles. Certainly, with so many events on the schedule not taking place, the calendar wasn't exactly that cluttered, so the cup was pretty much alone and able to occupy the spotlight all to itself. While almost all of the press and fan feedback that I have seen has been on the positive side of the spectrum, I hardly think that this was a home run, and believe that although it was a good first effort, there remains some pretty significant room for improvement in how this event is run and produced for fan consumption. But let's first begin with the positives. The pre-match presser, with all of the trash talk, was, let's face it, terrific. It was especially great to see Joe Skipper get his last laugh, both on the stage at the event and then on race day against Jordan Metzler, but it was even better to see the likes of Andrew Starkowitz take his ego out for a spin at the press event and then get beaten so soundly on race day. I think the team aspect of the competition is interesting, if not necessarily the best way to do this, and I'm going to come back to that later, but like in the Olympics where competitors compete as part of a national team, individuals still win the medals, and the Olympics metaphor isn't going to end there either. Clearly, the performance of American Taylor Nib was yet another revelation in this young professional's, or not really professional, but potentially nascent professional, budding career. After her performance at the Boulder 70.3, where she really, you know, took the world by storm coming off of uh, the Olympics in Tokyo. While most focused on how well she did, despite riding on a road bike with clip-on aero bars, and this was mentioned ad nauseum during the the uh, broadcast. Personally, I have to say I didn't really find that all that surprising. Uh, The woman does not own a TT bike, and as I and several of my guests have said on this program before, the best position on a bike is the one that you're most comfortable in, and she clearly was very comfortable, and really, when you watched her ride, she was really pretty arrow on that bike. I think it's fair to say that she wasn't giving that much away, though I had to wonder how much effort Daniela Reef was really putting in given her performance a week later at Ironman Switzerland, which was up to her usual stellar efforts. Now, that is to take nothing away from Nib, who is clearly a stellar, who clearly has a stellar future ahead of her and is a star in her own right. Other performances of interest included those of Lionel Sanders coming off a uh, Ironman performance very recently, and then, of course, doing as well as he did, Joe Skipper, Gustav Eden, and Ellie Salthouse. While question marks had to be raised about the likes of Sebastian Kinley, Sam Long, who really put up quite a disappointing performance, and even Paula Finlay. But where can the Collins Cup improve? Well, I have a few ideas that, of course, nobody's really going to listen to, but hey, you know what? They're worth talking about. While the broadcast was definitely better this time around, gosh, it still really has a long way to go to become something that's entirely watchable. Throwing in people who don't know anything about our sport but do a good job broadcasting has led to some really awkward exchanges. Witness Phil Liggett making comments about Lionel's run form, for example. 
clearly, Phil has never seen Lionel run before and was going on and on about how he must be hurting and had to be corrected uh, on more than one occasion that, no, this is just what he looks like. And now, there's got to be someone out there who could do better analysis without having to constantly demonstrate their lack of insight of triathlon-specific details or, on the other hand, feel the need to to constantly be explaining all of the most basic aspects of the sport to the viewers. I also don't know why they continue to try and make mundane moments so much more exciting than they actually are. These slow-mo shots of people running to transition with breathless descriptions of taking off a wetsuit, it really, really becomes a bit much. Okay, maybe you think those are mere quibbles. Well, let's look at the race itself. Personally, I find the choice of NASCAR speedways or pancake flat courses, as was the case in Slovakia, quite boring. I mean, what's the point of that? I want to see the best athletes show what they've got on difficult courses, better yet, beautiful ones. Watching athletes circle Daytona Speedway was really incredibly boring, and watching this race, the Collins Cup, wasn't all that much better. For those of you who are fans of road cycling, do you watch the long flat stages or do you tune in for the big climbs? The climbs, of course, because that's where all the excitement happens. You want to make the Collins Cup both more interesting and also an actual test of who's best. To do that, add some elevation. Add some technical parts, both on the bike and on the run. I mean, if it's going to be the way it is, which is really, really flat and completely non-technical, you might as well just do a pool swim, ride Zwift, and run on a treadmill. And returning to the team format that I mentioned earlier with the matches of three at a time, I can't be the only one who thought this was a little bit dull. I mean, sure, the draw was exciting and the fantasy aspect was cool, but the actual racing was kind of a yawner. I mean, how much better would it have been to see Patrick Lang up against Jan? Or maybe they worked together to try and somehow win points. I don't know, but figure out a way to actually make this a race with all of them in it to win it. Like the Olympics. The team gets points, but the winners get medals or money or both. And while we're on the Olympics, I don't think too many are going to disagree that one of the best triathlon events was the mixed relay. Well, if that isn't something I would like to see at the Collins Cup, I don't know what is. So yes, the first year of PTO events, including the Collins Cup, was interesting. And for me anyways, mildly, maybe moderately entertaining. And I can only hope that it's going to get better as it moves forward. But based on what I've seen, I'm not terribly optimistic that the producers of this event are either that innovative or open to changing things that much. So we're going to have to wait and see. On the show today, triathletes come in all shapes and sizes as well as different temperaments. One way in which we can differ from one another is in our preference for working out at different times of the day. Some are early birds getting up in the pre-dawn hours to get their workouts in super early, while others like to exercise in the afternoons or evenings. For most of us, our races are all early though, and for those who like to get their sleep, this can be, shall we say, eh, tiresome? Well, it turns out that there's some science on what time of day we perform at our best, and I'm going to take a look at that during the medical segment, coming up in just a bit. Later, I'm going to bring you a conversation that I had with age group athlete and Ironman Foundation fundraiser Bill Ogden. Bill and I recently met when he came out to Colorado to race in the Boulder 70.3, but our meeting was predicated on some misfortune that he ran into during his travels. You're going to hear about that, as well as how the triathlon community rallied to help him out, and about how Bill has handled some other adversities over the past year or so in just a short while. 
Right now, I want to take a moment to remind you all of the great bonus content that is available to you by becoming a Patreon supporter of the podcast over at patreon.com forward slash Podcast. For the price of about a cup of coffee per month, you can get access to all kinds of interesting interviews available only to supporters. Just recently, I gave a live lecture via Zoom to all my Patreon subscribers on the science of tapering. If you listened to episode 67, you heard me speak about some of this, but in this talk, I went much, much deeper. So visit my Patreon site today, become a supporter, so that you can get access to the video recording of this informative and, I hope, interesting talk on the science of tapering, as well as to all the other bonus content up there right now. That URL again is patreon.com forward slash Podcast. And of course, thank you so much in advance just for considering I started in the sport of triathlon more than 20 years ago, and back then, I was a much younger man, still able to get a solid eight or nine hours of sleep when I wasn't being woken up by mine or my wife's pager for calls about patient care. And this, of course, was long before kids. In those halcyon days, I trained when I wanted to, and often did so in a much less fatigued state than I tend to be in most of the time now. One thing that always bothered me, though, were the early mornings when I'd have to get up to get ready for and then leave for a race. You see, I was never much of a morning person. I hated when the alarm would go off at some ungodly hour, like 4.30 or 5 or even earlier, and I'd always feel pretty awful for the first hour afterwards while my confused body would get its act together and come to the realization that no, this wasn't some kind of cruel joke, but yes, there was an event that I had actually paid to participate in and for which I was robbing myself of some hard-won sleep. Still, I obviously enjoyed it, enough so that I stuck with it because here I am relating the story to you and still going through the same ritual some two decades later. Well, in those intervening years, children of course came along and forever changed my sleep patterns. Then came middle age, with its own effects on sleep, and so now, at the tender young age of 54, I find myself in a very different position than I was when I first started at 34. Now, waking up for races is actually not so bad, and I would almost say easy, as is going to bed at 8pm the night before to ensure that I get enough sleep beforehand. My point here is that there are many athletes who fancy themselves as morning people, others who think of themselves as more of evening people, and for even more still, probably most of us I'd wager, there is the natural variation from one type to another as we age. And yet, there is a fundamental question lying here that really needs to be answered, and that is, is there a specific time of day when we're primed to perform our best based on our internal clocks? Clearly, this question is pretty important to consider, given the fact that our races all start very early in the morning, and most tend to be over by noon, except for, of course, the Ironman distance that can go on for as long as an additional 12 hours or so. Now, I mentioned before that different people tend to exhibit preferences for different times of day, and this is based on our innate circadian rhythm. That's the internal clock that our bodies all have, and is made up of a complicated interplay of hormonal and neurologic processes that is influenced by daylight, as well as other internal and external factors that are really honestly too complex to go into here and, quite frankly, aren't really necessary in order to understand the context or the premise of this segment. 
Now, circadian rhythm influences all kinds of different physiologic processes, including core body temperature, alertness, as well as various other things, and this results in preferences for certain times of the day by certain people. Now, this circadian preference is also known as your chronotype. And across the population, if you were to ask people which they prefer, you would end up with kind of a bell curve, with the majority of people sitting in the middle classified as having no real preference between morning or evening. And then fewer individuals would cluster as morning types and about an equivalent number as evening types. Now, interestingly, research has shown that morning-type persons tend to actually gravitate to sports that have morning training and races, while evening-types self-select themselves out of those kinds of sports. Furthermore, chronotype is not a rigid thing, but can actually be a little bit malleable. A South African study showed that over time, marathon runners who trained early in the morning became more and more of morning people, even if they had started out as evening people. And they had improved performance earlier in the day after a period of training in the early hours. Still, amongst these runners, those who expressed a preference for mornings at the beginning of the study tended to have better overall times and more improvement in their performance than did those who initially expressed a preference for the evening. So malleable, yes, but still, your chronotype definitely has some impact on how well you perform at a fixed time during the day. Now, in another study, this time on collegiate swimmers, similar results were observed but this time also showing that those who prefer mornings had significantly more difficulty performing later in the day. So not only were they slower, but they also had to exert themselves more in order to perform at all. Now, similar to what we saw with the marathon runners, evening-type swimmers, those swimmers who preferred exercising in the evening or preferred the evening over the morning, were 6% slower in the morning than they were later in the day and had blood levels of markers of muscular effort that were 50% higher in the morning than they did in the evening, suggesting that they were working twice as hard or one and a half times as hard in the morning than they had to in the evening in order to go faster. Meanwhile, those morning types of swimmers, the people who preferred mornings, they needed to exert themselves five to seven times as hard in order to achieve the same performance in the evening as they were able to get in the morning. Well, these numbers are pretty remarkable. And what's sort of the underlying explanation for these results? Well, one of the main theories to explain this relates to body temperature. Circadian rhythms, as I mentioned before, affect body temperature in a fairly predictable way, with most people seeing gradually increasing core temperature over the course of the day, and that tends to peak between 2 and 8 p.m., before then slowly falling to a low at some time in the very early morning between 3 and 5 a.m., So during the day, you tend to be building and retaining heat, and then during the evening, you're losing heat and then continuing to lose heat over the night until such time as around 3 or 5 when you reach that low point. Now, it's widely believed that this increase in core temperature that we see during the day, peaking in the afternoon, also corresponds with peak performance of athletes. Now, morning-type athletes tend to see their peak temperature occur much earlier in the day than do the no-preference people, who themselves still peak earlier than what we see with the evening-type people. But across the board, 
and this is speaking in generalities, researchers have tended to find that athletic performance improves as you move through the day, along with that increase in core temperature. So if you were to do athletic testing on individuals, you would see that they would continually improve throughout the day until such time as their peak core temperature was reached late in the afternoon, and then they would start to see some decrease. Now, a couple of things have been shown to influence this observation, and the first of these is climate. It turns out that in warm environments, there's less of an effect on performance as the day progresses, and presumably, this is because core temperature doesn't tend to drop as much in such climates. The second is that by exercising regularly in the mornings over time, morning performance may be able to be improved relative to evening performance, kind of similar to what I described earlier with the runners. Now, all of this is really fascinating and great, but at the end of the day, there's still going to be a small minority of people who are morning types and a much larger proportion who prefer evening or at the very least later in the day. And yet for all of us in triathlon, we're going to find ourselves groggy and preparing to race in events that begin at like 7 a.m. So is there a way that we can make the most of this? Is there a way that we can leverage our chronotype to try and improve our performance and get over this fact that even though we're an evening type, try and do better in the mornings? Well, fortunately, there actually is. But I got to tell you, I'm not sure you're going to like it. It turns out that you can influence the circadian rhythm of athletic performance based on when you wake up. In a small study of field hockey players, researchers redemonstrated what I've already told you about, and that is the impressive variability in athletic performance by the time of day, with performance varying as much as 26% in some athletes, depending on what time of day they were assessed. Now, the most reliable indicator of peak performance in these athletes turned out not so much to be the time of day, but rather the amount of time that had elapsed since they woke up. So by modifying the time that the athletes woke up, the athletes could be made to perform at their best at different times of the day. So the key was to wake up about four hours before the performance. So what that means for all of us in triathlon is that for a 7 a.m. start, for a 70.3 or Ironman, waking up at 3 a.m., as stupid as that sounds, is really not such a bad idea after all. Okay, you know, that's not true. It's actually a terrible idea. But at least there's some physiological rationale that makes the whole concept maybe infinitesimally more palatable. And so that's where the science is on this matter. Our circadian rhythms bestow upon us a chronotype, and that chronotype very much influences what time of day we tend to perform best at. For the vast majority, our performance is going to improve later in the day as our core temperature rises, but this can be influenced by training regimens, by climate, or most importantly, by changing when we wake up. By waking up four hours before our event, we give ourselves the best ability to co-opt those circadian rhythms to our advantage and improve our performance on our timeline. So get to bed early, set the coffee maker and the alarm for 3 a.m., and embrace the suck that is influencing your chronotype to do what you want it to do on your time. Do you have a question for me to consider answering on the podcast? Or do you have comments on anything you heard on this segment? Well, either way, send it to me at tri underscore doc at icloud.com. If you are a regular listener of this podcast, then you know that the TriDoc is well-versed in the science of endurance sport. If you are looking for a coach who will bring that kind of insight to coaching, 
someone who brings more than 20 years of experience in racing and the knowledge that comes with years of coaching and both USAT and Ironman U coaching certifications, then maybe the TriDoc is someone you should consider for your coach to help you take your training in racing to the next level. As a member of the staff at LifeSport Coaching, Jeff Sankoff can get you access to team workouts and camps as well as discounts on clothing, nutrition products, and even bikes. So if you are thinking about a triathlon coach to help you achieve your performance goals, visit tridoccoaching.com or lifesportcoaching.com to see how the TriDoc can help you get to where you want to be in triathlon. Those websites again, tridoccoaching.com or lifesportcoaching.com. My guest for today is Bill Ogden. Bill's a proud Michigan State Spartan varsity baseball member from 1990 and 1991 and has been a practicing trial attorney for the past 22 years in solo practice for eight. He's a four-time Ironman finisher and an eight-time 70.3 finisher and qualified in 2020 for the 70.3 World Championships, which of course will now be taking place this coming September in St. George. He's also a Team Ironman Foundation member for 2021 and will be participating in the same Ironman Muncie that I will be participating in. Uh, he's raising funds for that. And he's an ardent supporter and fundraiser for the National Multiple Sclerosis Society and creator and chair of Team Circle of Friends, a 501c3 organization made of his bicycle MS team members to help raise funds for the National Multiple Sclerosis Society. He also happens to be a COVID myocarditis survivor, and that is just one of the many things we're going to talk about during my conversation with him today. Welcome to the TriDoc Podcast, Bill. It's a pleasure to have you. Jeff, my pleasure to be here. Thanks for asking me to be on. It's always good to talk Tri and a few other subjects. There you go. So, Bill, I want to begin first with your experience with COVID. If you could tell me when uh, you contracted the illness and how things sort of progressed from there. For me, it was early in the pandemic, April of uh, it was 2020. That, that missing year always creates a weird memory. Right. That. Um, yeah. And the, the symptoms that I had really weren't severe. Nothing really got below my neck. And I initially really thought it was seasonal allergies until somebody gave me a, a good shake and said, you don't get a temperature from allergies, Bill. You might want to go get tested. Um, then I found out I was positive. Uh, it was really maybe 36 hours where it was, you know, a little bit inconvenient, some chills, some aches, a headache. I would say within four or five days, the initial symptoms cleared and I was back into my training regimen after taking basically a week off. Um, there's, uh, there's obviously a prologue here or analog to the story that my symptoms, I, I don't know if I can call myself a long hauler because I don't know what that really looks like. And I think medically, I don't know if you could define it. There's a lot of different things I've researched about what is or isn't a long hauler. But for me, by mid-July, I started noticing many issues with my heart rate, some arrhythmias, my resting heart rate through my Garmin data was off. Um, I had a blood pressure machine and I was monitoring my blood pressure and it was erratic. And that's uh, after a few weeks of that, I decided to seek cardiologist out to try to narrow the focus here and determine whether I had or did not have myocarditis. 
Wow, that's uh, pretty amazing because uh, I, I've covered COVID myocarditis before, and the data to this point suggests that the people most likely to be afflicted with it are those who have much more severe cases, the ones who are hospitalized. Although there is definitely a subset of people who can get it even with mild disease, and you clearly were one of those less fortunate. Um, you were talking about long COVID. Long COVID is one of those things, as you suggest, is still a little bit being flushed out, but it seems to be predominantly respiratory and um, mental health issues. Um, cardiac issues have been described mostly in the form of the myocarditis, but don't seem to be part of the long COVID problem, uh, at least not that anywhere that I've read. Um, but nonetheless, that doesn't change the fact that you clearly had a problem. So uh, when you went to your cardiologist, what, what did they say? Well, I, I basically got the million dollar markup as it's referred to in the insurance industry, uh, the, the stress echo, the heart MRI, or the, excuse me, the echocardiogram, the stress test, the heart MRI. And, and one of the problems at the time as, as we spill from July to August was just getting in. It wasn't, you know, I felt generally okay. I knew there was an issue. There were certainly people, elderly, infirm, pre-existing conditions that needed to get in to see cardiologists and specialists. So I had about a six or eight week delay before I could even see my doctor. And by the time the tests were ordered and everything that had come up, I was told, look, there's no scarring. You know, none of your tests were outside the range of abnormal, but there was certainly evidence of myocarditis. And uh, what was told to me was that everything that you said mimicked everything my elder patients have, have had with myocarditis. So he's like, I can only conclude you had it. But given your level of health in that moment, your body was able to fight it off. And you just, it surfaced with some arrhythmias, a regular heartbeat, a regular blood pressure, and you needed to take a few months off. So I think that's, that closed the book on it. And I don't want to say long COVID because I'm not, nobody really knows where this goes as the, the, the book of research and data continues to grow with everyone. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, as I said, the, the data on myocarditis right now seems to be self-limited, but, uh, you know, we don't know. It hasn't been long enough. So you took how much time off? Well, I mean, I, I, it really started mid-July. I remember the bike ride I was on. I was doing a brick after work, after a swim. Swim was kind of average. The bike, I couldn't last. I was 15 minutes into it and I couldn't pedal. And I remember telling my coach and a few of my teammates, I said, I got to go back to the car. And as I turned around, I, I literally broke down crying because I was wondering whether or not I'd ever be able to, you know, your mind disasterifies everything, catastrophizes it. And I'm like, I'm never going to be able to do this again. I'm never going to be able to compete. Worlds is down the toilet. Um, so basically from mid-July, I would say until I got the green light towards mid to end of November, I was probably doing two or three light workouts a week just to maintain. Nothing into zone, really, so I'd touch in zone two, but I'd almost walk jog, easy swim at the YMCA when the weather got colder, um, no intensity on the bike, you know, just get down on Zwift and spin out for an hour. That's pretty much in keeping with what I've heard in terms of how long it takes and in terms of how people respond. So I'm glad that that for, for you, things went well and that you recovered. Uh, starting in November, I gather you picked up your training again because you're in for Ironman Muncie. And I know that you just recently did Boulder. Did you do any other races this year? 
I did. I also had uh, Steelhead at end of June here in Michigan, 70.3. Fantastic race on Lake Michigan. Um, and even before that, I was uh, signed up for Glass City, taking my second attempt at a BQ uh, attempt uh, in Toledo. That's the Glass City Marathon in Toledo, which I'm very proud and happy to report. I made it by eight seconds. Now, I'm not going to race with eight seconds, but I get to say I got a BQ. Now, I'm just curious about your state of mind going into those first events. Uh, you know, a lot of people can be overly, you know, weighed down by the fear. Uh, you know, you get a diagnosis like, you know, post-COVID myocarditis. We've heard now of young athletes succumbing to this dying suddenly. Uh, I'm just curious how it felt psychologically to go into these events. Did you carry any of that with you or was it really just out of your mind? Um. I'm going to reform your question and say, I still carry it with me. I'm very well aware. I think there was a kind of a famous story that was put out last year about the old Northwestern football coach who uh, was an athlete, had myocarditis, and many years later died running a marathon. Uh, and it was attributed to some of the damage, which is why I pressed my cardiologist to take um, the heart MRI and the echo to see if there was any uh, prevalent scarring. Um, so it, you can't really take it out of your mind. You know, I could, I could have a splinter or break my arm and I, it's easy to see, but I can't crack my chest open and take a look at my heart. So that's the long answer. Yes, it was with me, but I think I pushed through most of the insecurities and fear and training because as I think, as you know, and maybe I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I think most endurance athletes, the hard part is the training. When it comes time to show up for what I call test day, in my in parlance for me, that's the bar exam for you, your boards, you've done all you can, you know, you have put the effort forth and you can only control certain things. You can't control the weather. You can't control your training. You can't get that last workout in to suddenly increase your performance. So the Boston, the, the marathon training in the winter and spring really set aside my insecurities. And this will sound really dumb. When the week before I PR'd my half marathon on accident on a training run, my coach had me go easy for the first six and a half. And then he said, just turn on the switch and see how you feel. And I got about to mile nine or 10. And I realized in my head, I, I said, I might actually get a PR on my half marathon. And I ended up running a 134, um, which might have packed a little fatigue in me. But it also told me, it gave me the confidence that I can push myself. I got up into zone, zone three, zone four for a while. So, um, it's hard to, to expel it out of your head, but, uh, you know, you just, you got to live your life. You got to move forward. That's fantastic. I love that attitude. And I, 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 I can only imagine that it's still with you. And, uh, so are you undergoing ongoing monitoring or is this something that the cardiologist said, you know what, you're done. I don't need to see you. I am not being monitored. It is more or less, uh, you're good at monitoring yourself. If you have an issue, give me a call. You know, my cardiologist, fortunately, is an ultra runner. So he has a good idea of the mindset of an endurance athlete. He kind of knew where I was at. And I had all my data for him, which kind of made his job easier. I'm sure you wished every patient would walk in with heart charts and, and blood pressure and blood ox monitoring and a notebook. But that's basically what I did. 
That's really interesting. Well, that's that's good to know. I'm really glad for you, Bill, because that's a that's a big one. Um, and then so you come off of that, and then you come to Boulder, and that's really how I came to find out about you because um, your trip to Boulder was eventful, shall we say? So uh, I'd love uh, the reason I, I I got in touch to have you on was really because what happened to you in Boulder and the way the community rallied to help you, I think, is just so emblematic of triathlon, and I really wanted to share the story. So. Tell me what happened when you came uh, to the Boulder area to participate in the 70.3 just a few short weeks ago. Well, I flew in and I'm going to try to be a little bit, I kind of have to be a little bit sparse with details because the claim is still pending, but the airline broke my bike. The, The seat stay was cracked. I couldn't declare the damage at the moment because it wasn't a significant break. And I don't have enough expertise to know if carbon fiber is ruined or not. Apparently, the, one of the, the great mechanics at the shop in Fort Collins I went to taught me a little trick. Um, so I, I, I brought it in. Oh, I got to know what the trick is. He, he had a coin and he goes, it, 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 if it, it, you knock on it and it, it, you'll hear it dead. It. There'll be kind of a crisper sound. And then as you work your way down the tube or the frame or the seat stay, it'll deaden if it's not just superficial or a scratch. So uh-huh, interesting. anyhow, I couldn't do it right then and there. Um, the Rocky Mountain Triathlon Club is based out of this. Uh, I can't, I can't pull the shoe store for the life of me. Eh, it's, I'm not going to waste time trying to think about it, but this, the, the gentleman, Dakota was his name. He was wonderful, said it was broken, typed me up a letter. Um, and at that point, I went through the, I think, the like the five stages of, uh, you know, grief and acceptance within 20 minutes because I was pissed. And, you know, it's a Cervelo P5. It's secondhand, but it, I got it from a guy that's almost, he, he's kind of like you. He's, he's finished fifth and seventh, I think, and he's just missed getting a Kona slot immaculate with his gear. This thing was basically new. And uh, I realized after I was done being upset for about 10 minutes, I got a little sad and depressed. And then about 10 or 20 minutes later, I remember sitting in my cousin's house in Fort Collins and going, nothing, this doesn't help anything at this point. You know, it's all out of my control. What are you going to do next? And I said, okay, you know, there's always these Facebook groups for all the events. Let's uh, let's, I'm going to become the anecdote. I'm the story. I'm the person who says, Hey, I need a bike. Um, here's what happened airline was mishandled my bike broke the seat stay i'm here for boulder and i think the way you said the outpouring of support was incredible to watch i i kind of figured somebody would step up but i didn't expect eight ten different offers of bikes from multiple people uh, a woman from kansas said she would grab her husband's bike and was going to put it in her car with her and the reason i say this i think her name is shelly we ended up parking next to each other when we checked in. It was oh, a, the, wow. the coincidence was unreal. So the outpouring support was fantastic. You know, the Rocky Mountain Tri Club uh, was was great. Their mechanic who worked in the shoe store there. Um, I did some training at Horse Tooth. I met some triathletes there who happened to be corralled right in my row. Um, so it was really nice to feel how. And and I just loved, we weren't talking like, you know, these were not cheap bikes either. People were offering like top of the line TT bikes with electronic shift. I mean, you had your choice of pretty much anything. It was pretty amazing. Yeah. I, I had a coach, a local coach. I figured, I think he was in Boulder. He was going to bring me in, give me his bike, which I think was a P3 fit me. And I, I had to go see him the next day. 
But then I, there was another gentleman, and this is the bike I ended up getting. It was Matt Miller from Base Performance, who owns uh, the CEO of Base, threw a picture of his uh, Quintana Roo up, his uh, uh, P6, or excuse me, um, was it the 6.1? I forget how the model numbers work. I'm confusing the P5. So anyhow, it's his like $10,000 QR bike. And I'm like, he's like, just come and get it. It's all yours. We're basically the same size. And two hours later, I was sitting in Bases Warehouse talking with Matt, just kind of chewing the fat about triathlon and everything. It, it, he was an amazing person. I mean, not to exclude all the offers. I mean, literally, there was a, maybe at least 10 offers of a bike. Um, but you, Matt, know, that, that, you know, Facebook Facebook is like all kinds of evil. But when it's when it's good, it's all kinds of good. And it was so good in this case. And it was so amazing to watch that thread just explode with kindness and sympathy and uh it was just amazing and and to to see the outpouring of support and uh uh well wishes and to get you set up with such a fantastic bike so quickly was was really really endearing and i just uh, i just had to tell that story because it like i said uh, so emblematic of everything I've come to see in triathlon. I constantly see that kind of outpouring of uh, triathletes wanting to help each other and recognizing in other people, the kinds of things that have happened to themselves or the kinds of things they worry about happening to themselves and would want someone to help them out with. And this is exactly what happened here. It was such a great story. Yeah. To your point, I would encourage your listeners if they if they face that, just ask for help. I mean, I have actually given my bike out and I considered anecdotally saying, hey, you know, I've loaned my bike out before. Can somebody help me out? But I figured that might like double reverse the karma. So I just kind of let it sit. <laughs> but, you know, I'm part of a, a club here in Metro Detroit. Let me just kind of get that Detroit Tiger symbol up there. <laughs> uh, you know, we have like we're we're five hundred strong. It's we're one of the the country's biggest clubs. That's not a nationwide club like the Cupcake Cartel or Wadi, and uh, you know, there's a lot of that just that just goes on between us. You you kind of take it for granted until you step outside your zone and you're left on an island, no teammates at this race, uh, unsupported. And I and I had to figure out a solution. And certainly these these folks have, were just fantastic. It was really really encouraging to see and that's kind of why when in the moment i was like all right this will work itself out so i gotta know how the race go for you i was happy with it um i i i my time was a 516 my place in my age group was 23rd i was uh, in fairness i'm gonna sound like a total snob triathlete at this point it was my c race and i was coming off a hamstring injury and I didn't realize the run was about 80%, 90% gravel, hard pack trail there. So that didn't exactly help my uh, nagging hamstring a lot. So all that being said, and having a new bike, let's not forget that. I, I, I was really happy with my performance as I tune up for Ironman Michigan 70.3 in, in three weeks here. Worlds the week after, which is kind of just a victory lap at this point. And then Ironman Muncie to take a look at what a full looks like after two years of being on the shelf. Wow. Well, that's, uh, that's quite a lineup you've got for the rest of the season. So uh, hopefully, hopefully knock on wood, they all go ahead because as we know, 
the first domino has fallen and yeah, uh, we'll hope that uh, there's no others in the short term. Uh, I want to finish uh, our conversation today just with a brief uh, talk about the fundraising you've been doing. You've clearly been very active with uh, the MS Society and I'm uh, curious what uh, your background is with them and what brought you the passion to uh, raise funds for them. I I began cycling with what what I call my bike MS team, but it's really just a group of friends that have ridden together for almost 20 years for a very dear lifelong friend of mine. Her name is uh, Tanya Nordhaus. Um, Tanya was diagnosed with MS, I believe it was 21, 20, 21 years ago. I'd have to check my notes. Um, we grew up together. Uh, frankly, she was like one of my first girlfriends of holding hands and kissing counts as a dating when you're a 14 year old boy. Um, and she had this unique ability and, and retains this ability to this day. She's just one of those givers that she, she will step in and help anyone at any time. And she's a friend collector, not in a bad way. If you're her friend, you are always her friend. And when this news got to me in, in, about her, it was something that I knew in the moment that if the roles were reversed, she would get off her butt and get on a bike and start raising money. And that was kind of the inspiration for me in the moment that I had to do something. Although I had not ridden my bike since my days at Michigan State, where you're weaving in and out of traffic like a reckless student. Um, I learned quickly I had an aptitude to raise money. Uh, And asking for money is a unique thing. You know, it's hard for people to do. And I waited till like the last few weeks. I raised six. $300. $300. And I thought, well, okay, I'm a middle of the packer, kind of like, you know, the, the race mentality. I'm a middle of the packer. Well, as it ends up, I was like the third leading fundraiser in the state. I shifted my focus. I said, it's time to set big goals. I told myself I want to raise $2 million before my life is up in the hopes of fighting multiple sclerosis, helping out Tanya and helping out everybody with MS. And I've been on a path for 14 years now raising money consistently through uh, depression or whatever you want to call 2008 and nine. I think history will view it as a depression, but uh, a pandemic and everywhere in between, I've raised over $120,000. I have some standing events going that continue to raise money each year. I've paired up with the Ironman Foundation now that I'm doing Ironman Muncie. I think I'm $140,000. $45 away from meeting my threshold requirement for entry, which I'll get. And then every dollar I raise after goes to the MS Society because it's a part of their program where you can redirect funds after minimum levels. So um, it's nice to have a lot of things moving forward on this. It's even better. And if I were to tell anyone that uh, whoever does fundraising already knows this, but when you get outside yourself and you do things for other people, it's the best remedy for anything going on in your life. It's even better than the runner's high and being on a bike and falling into a trance. I mean, just to help others out that with no expectation of return, it is sometimes, it is easily the most therapeutic thing I can do when life gets stressful. I just turn around and work on some fundraising. I I hear everything you're saying 100% couldn't agree more. And I can't think of a better way to finish this conversation. Uh, Bill, it's uh, laudable what you've been doing. Uh, I am 
just a, a, enormously impressed with your dedication to it. And that lifetime goal is uh, really something to uh, be very proud of. And I, I look forward to tracking that progress. I am equally excited to meet you in Muncie. Knock on wood. We're going to hope that race goes ahead right now. Things are looking good. We are recording this today. It is exactly 40 days away. So we just need to make it through 40 more days. And then uh, you and I will get a chance to... Uh, uh, shake hands from a socially distant van point, vantage point and uh, meet for the first time. So I'm quite excited about that. But for now, uh, I want to take a moment just to thank you again for uh, joining me on the Tridar podcast. It's been a great conversation. I really enjoyed learning more about you and about all the things you're doing. Where can people go if they want to help you with your Ironman Foundation donations uh, for this year? Very good question. As I scramble quickly to pull up my fundraising page. It's not an easy URL, is it? I, I have no. the URL you sent me and it's not an easy one. Is it the same one? No, it's not. But what I can say it is there's that short URL. Um, yeah, the ironmanfoundation.donordrive.com slash participant slash Bill Ogden. Okay. Ironmanfoundation.donordrive.com slash participant slash Bill Ogden, O-G-D-E-N. And I will have that along with a few other links uh, for Bill in the show notes. Again, Bill Ogden, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. It's been a great conversation. Jeff, it's been my pleasure. Let me get one more plug in for Base Performance and Matt Miller for stepping up and lending his bike. If any of your listeners, your tri-doctees, if you want to call them that, uh, you know, give, give, give base a shot, man. That, that man is one good human being and it was really great to meet him. So I, I have to at least give him a lot of credit for making this possible. Yeah, absolutely. Don't, I couldn't agree more. Thanks again. Thanks Jeff. And that's it for another episode. The TriDoc Podcast is produced and edited by me, Jeff Sankoff, along with my indomitable intern, Maddie Pesch. You can find the show notes for everything discussed on the show today, as well as archives of previous episodes at TriDocPodcast.com. Do you have questions about any of the issues discussed on this episode, or do you have a question that you'd like for me to consider answering on a future episode? Well, send me an email at tri underscore doc at icloud.com. If you're interested in coaching services, please visit try.coaching.com or lifesportcoaching.com, where you can find a lot of information about me and the services that I provide. You can also follow me on the TriDoc Podcast Facebook page, TriDoc Coaching on Instagram, and the TriDoc Coaching YouTube channel. If you enjoyed this podcast, I really do hope that you'll consider leaving us a rating and a review, as well as subscribe to the show wherever you download it. And of course, there's always the option of becoming a supporter of the podcast at patreon.com forward slash Podcast. The music heard at the beginning and the end of the show is Radio by Empty Hours and is used with permission. This song and many others like it can be found at ReverbNation.com, where I hope that you'll visit and give small independent fans a chance. The TriDoc Podcast will be back again soon with another medical question for us to answer and another interview with someone in the world of multi-sport. Until then, train hard, train healthy.